Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. Sometimes you don't know how the story ends. That's not just a philosophical statement or some figurative musing to start your weekend. I mean, practically, in journalism, sometimes you do not know how the story that you're working on will end. When you're out reporting, making a record of things as they happen, you might understand where things began. You may even know why things began. But you might just be in the middle. Where do things end? You don't know. It hasn't happened yet. Today on The Weekend Intelligence, a story told from the middle that has now found its end. Yesterday morning, Alexei Navalny, Russia's number one opposition politician, died in prison. The facts about his death may never be fully known, but we do know that in the last few months of his life, He'd been moved to a remote penal colony within the Arctic Circle and placed into solitary confinement. Last year, The Economist's Russia editor, Arkady Ostrovsky, presented Next Year in Moscow, an eight-episode audio series profiling Russians who are opposed to the war in Ukraine. Across the series, Arkady spoke to anti-war journalists, lawyers, public figures and activists most of whom had chosen to flee Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. In the final episode, which was published in April, he turned to one opposition figure who wasn't available for interview, Alexei Navalny, who was then in a prison 250 kilometres or 150 miles east of Moscow. The episode gives an account of what turned out to be the last three years of Navalny's life. Peppered with his own words, and told by the people who knew him well. A fitting tribute as we remember his life. In August 2020, Alexei Navalny, Russia's number one opposition politician, was in Siberia. He was in a combative mood. Massive protests had broken out in one of Russia's neighbours to the west, Belarus, against its dictator, Alexander Lukashenko. Meanwhile, in the east of Russia, people were also out in the streets, rallying against the Kremlin and cheering protesters in Belarus. Navalny felt the moment was ripe with potential. So did the Kremlin. Kira Yarmash, Navalny's long-serving spokesperson, was with him on that trip through Siberia. It was a Thursday. They were preparing to return to Moscow. And... I remember that when we boarded on that plane, uh, I was uh, very satisfied with the whole trip. And I thought how, well, how great it was and how great it would be to go back home. 
The plane took off on what should have been a four and a half hour flight. Kira and Navalny were seated together. Alexei started to watch uh, Rick and Morty, and I was reading a book. Navalny is well known for his love of Rick and Morty, an animated sitcom about a mad scientist and his grandson. And in 15 minutes, he closed his laptop and he asked me to talk to him because he started to feel unwell. And I remember that he was very pale. Now it was obvious that something is wrong with him, but no one knew what exactly. He got up, excused himself, told that he will go to the bathroom, uh, and he never returned. Soon after leaving his seat, he collapsed onto the floor of the plane. On a video recorded by one of the other passengers, you can hear him moaning in pain. The moment when the pilot made contact with air traffic control is also captured on tape. We have a man lying on the floor being sick, he says. Most likely poisoned, not drunk. He needs emergency medical attention. About 40 minutes later, the plane made an emergency landing in Omsk. Paramedics injected Navalny with atropine and almost certainly saved his life. He was soon in a coma. After some wrangling, Putin eventually agreed that Navalny could be transferred to Berlin, hoping never to see him again on Russian soil. Medics placed the comatose politician in a sealed hazmat stretcher before loading him onto the plane. It looked like a coffin from a science fiction film. On the 7th of September, nearly three weeks after the poisoning, doctors in Berlin announced that they had taken Navalny out of his coma. The moment he awoke, Navalny's chief of staff told him what had happened. Putin had poisoned him with Novichok, a nerve agent only available to operatives of the Russian state. Fuck, how stupid is that, Navalny said. His friends knew he was back in action. I went to see Alexei in early October. Kira met me on the corner of Kurfürstenstrasse in West Berlin and led me into a safe house that was brimming with German plainclothes security and police. Navalny looked gaunt. His neck was scarred where the intubation tubes had gone in. His hands trembled. His speech was fast. He'd been having trouble sleeping, he said. But his near-death experience hadn't dimmed his ambitions. Instead, it made him more determined than ever. He was already planning his return to Russia and would get on a plane as soon as he'd recovered his mobility and strength. As he told me time and again, he was a professional politician fighting for power. 
чувствую, что ну, не то, что земля уходит из-под ног. Некий идет исторический процесс. He was confident the time was on his side. Putin was a throwback, holding on to an outdated idea of Russia as an empire and its people as subjects. Navalny had a different vision of Russia as a modern European nation-state where people have agency. Putin is the last chord of the USSR, he told me, and people in the Kremlin know there is a historic current that is moving against them. Ну да, ну понятно. Да я думаю, что, конечно, они э, сейчас как бы считают меня более опасным и ненавидят меня сильнее, потому что боятся просто больше. They're scared of me, he said, and desperately don't want me to return. If you do, I replied, they could arrest you and lock you up for a quarter of a century. He shrugged. So let them. Uh, I got two bags. Um... Around 1 p.m. on January 17, 2021, I arrived at Brandenburg Airport in Berlin and checked in for flight 936 to Vnukovo, Moscow. It was operated by a low-cost airline called Pabieda, which means victory in Russian. The departure lounge was teeming with journalists. We made our way onto the plane and took our seats. Then, Alexei Navalny stepped into the cabin. Mr. Navalny from Israel Television, aren't you afraid? Mr. Navalny from Israel People clapped. Cameras flashed. Navalny slid into his chair two rows in front of me, in 13A, his lucky seat next to his wife. Looking into a phone camera held by one of their aides, Yulia and Alexei Navalny reenacted a scene from a popular film. Boy, bring in some vodka. We're going home. The clip was soon live on Instagram. Navalny barely talked through the rest of the flight. He and Yulia sat watching Rick and Morty. As we approached our destination, I handed my boarding pass to him and asked him to scribble his thoughts on it. Yo, Arkady, he wrote. Last time I passed notes across Rosewater School. Glad you're on this funny flight, going I don't know where. A few minutes into our descent, the captain made an announcement. Moscow's Nukovo airport, where 2,000 Navalny supporters had gathered, was, he said, closed for technical reasons. Sorry, everyone, Navalny shouted to his fellow passengers. We were being diverted to a different airport on the other side of the city, Sheremetyevo. A few hundred protesters had managed to get there in time and assembled outside. 
As Navalny walked through the terminal, followed by his wife and dozens of journalists, he paused in front of a poster of the Kremlin. He then turned to address the press. This is the happiest day for the past five months of my life, he said. I have come home. He then proceeded to passport control. You must have missed me. I missed you, he told border guards. A group of officers in black uniforms approached. As his lawyer argued with the officers, Navalny silently turned towards his wife, Yulia. She hugged him and kissed him goodbye on the cheek, then attentively wiped away the lipstick. Navalny was taken alone to a holding cell and onto a kangaroo court which the authorities had hastily assembled in prison. A portrait of Stalin's secret police chief hung on the wall. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the next few days, mass protests broke out across the country over Navalny's arrest. Putin controlled the courts, the secret police and the army. Navalny controlled the narrative. Speaking from the dock a few weeks after landing in Moscow, Navalny addressed the judge and the country. He spoke like he was at a rally or delivering a sermon. He cited the Bible before offering a modern interpretation. What's the most popular political slogan in Russia, he asked. Help me, someone. Where do you think power lies? It lies in truth. They who have the truth have the power. Tens of millions of people want the truth, and they'll get it sooner or later. One of those millions of people, hungry for truth, was a young Navalny supporter, Maria Kuznetsova. I even went to the airport to meet him. I was one of the few people who went to the right airport because he changed it last minute. How did you manage to get from Vnukovo Airport to Sheremetyevo? Because I didn't go to Vnukovo. So how did you guess going to the right airport? Or did you live nearby? I just lived nearby. Maria hadn't always lived in Moscow. She was born in 1998 in Novokuznetsk, a mining town in Siberia and one of Russia's most polluted places. 
Actually, I remember that the snow was really black because of the pollution. And when I was at the fourth grade, Vladimir Putin was supposed to go to Novokuznetsk, and they just painted the snow to be white for his visit. She saw violence everywhere growing up. Boys scrapping at school, drunken men beating their wives. It just felt like you could never escape from that and there were no opportunities for you. So I knew straight away that I will leave Siberia and go either to Moscow or St. Petersburg. She moved to Moscow at 17 to enroll in a diplomatic academy. Her ambition was to join the Russian Foreign Service, but she quickly became disillusioned with the system. During the first year, I understood quite clearly that what Russian universities showed to be social sciences is just propaganda. And in 2017, she watched a film that encapsulated the rot. It was an investigation of corruption in the Kremlin, produced by Navalny and his team. I'm from that generation for whom that film opened eyes. I was not interested in Russian politics before that. I wanted to work for an NGO somewhere very far away from Russia. But when I saw that film, everything changed for me. The film was part of Navalny's presidential campaign, and it spoke to a new current in Russian politics. Because Navalny was a totally new type of politician for Russia, he stormed Russian politics with a laptop and an internet connection. His grassroots campaigns were informed by American TV shows like The Wire. He made his own fortune. His message that change was possible was now reaching parts of society well beyond the prosperous Moscow and St. Petersburg crowds who had protested against Putin before. They were younger, poorer and angrier. Maria herself volunteered for his campaign and started collecting signatures. It wasn't because she was enamored with his leadership style, but because he hailed a change to a system that was preventing her and her country from advancing. In the years to come, Maria's political activism expanded. She worked for Open Russia, a pro-democracy group founded by Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Like many people, this drew her to the attention of the authorities. And in 2021, tired of the searches and intimidation, she moved to Georgia. Within a year, Russia had invaded Ukraine. She felt she couldn't go back. But this criminal war reinforced her feeling of responsibility for her country and paradoxically changed her own sense of identity. I always, before the war, I always prefer to say that I'm from Russia, that I'm not Russian. Because I just didn't feel that nationality was important. But since the 24th of February, I definitely started to identify more as a Russian. Now it's a thing that I cannot leave and a thing that I need to work on for many years. Cultivating a new sense of national identity is central to Navalny's project. And this is directly related to what's happening on the front lines of the war. Ukraine wishes to be a European nation-state, and Navalny wants the same for Russia. Putin can't allow either. 
but the president's tactics appear to be backfiring. We know that the war has strengthened Ukraine's sense of nationhood. And now we're starting to see that opposition to the war is also awakening a new sense of national consciousness in Russia. It is in Russia's national interest, Navalny said in a recent statement, to stop the war, withdraw troops from all of Ukraine's territory, use Russian oil and gas revenues to pay compensation to Ukraine, and bring war criminals to justice. Maria is now studying at Harvard. In a recent tweet, she wrote that she was there to learn how to try war criminals and restore peace. I think it's quite clear that even if this war ends, but the government does not change in Russia, it can start a new war. That's why I just think that our war, in a way, is much longer than this one. It is your war? Definitely. Definitely. And this war, too, is a fight for territory. Because Putin wants to confine the version of Russia that Maria and Navalny both envisage to a remote prison cell. It's a metaphor with precise physical dimensions. His cell is about six square meters. You can't properly move there because it's tiny, and for a man of his height, it is like a concrete cage. Alexei Navalny has mostly been in solitary confinement since last summer at Pinal Colony IK6, 250 kilometers east of Moscow. His spokesperson, Kira Yarmash, described it for us. There is uh, only iron stool inside that is nailed to the floor, so you can't move it around. There is a tiny window, but it doesn't open, of course. There is no ventilation, there is no hot water. And in the morning, at 5 a.m., you have to give away your mattress, and your bed is tightened to the wall, and you are prohibited from lying on the floor. So you can only stand or sit on the stool. Uh, this is it. Everything is designed with the prisoner's discomfort in mind. Even the walls, which are finished with a rough texture. This is a special gulag invention, actually, so that it would be very uncomfortable to lean on that wall, and you can't write anything on it. Prohibited from making phone calls, Navalny is given less than 35 minutes a day during which to read legal documents and write letters. The lights in his cell are never switched off. And he is banned from buying food in the prison shop, subsisting on whatever he is given by the guards. In Russia, it means slowly dying from hunger uh, because it is definitely insufficient to survive on uh, this type of food. Him being in this cell is definitely a torture. It is physical torture and psychological because, well, he is not allowed to do anything there. Kira says his health is failing and that he is rapidly losing weight. They called an ambulance to Alexei uh, in the prison. So, I mean, the guards decided to call an ambulance. And we all understand that in Russian prison, only if you are in a critical condition, they will uh, call you a doctor. The state is now busy working on a new case that would brand Navalny an extremist. Charges against him could carry 35 years in jail.
But Navalny's experience hasn't deterred other opposition figures from following his example and facing the consequences for it. Ilya Yashin is serving an eight-and-a-half-year jail term. And while we were working on this episode, Vladimir Karamurza was sentenced to 25 years. By handing out sentences that hark back to the darkest Stalinist days, Putin is telling his opponents, abandon hope. By refusing to fear him, they're delivering their verdict. The 70-year-old president will not live forever. Prison exists in your mind, Navalny says in one post. And if you think carefully, I'm not in prison, but on a space voyage to a wonderful new world. He's a very strong and brave man, so um, he remains very positive, and uh, we can see it in his letters, in his posts, something like that. He believes in what he is doing, so this keeps him going. I try to help him to feel better in the prison, to give him my support, moral support. Shimon Levin is a rabbi. He was born and raised in Russia and spent several years working in a Moscow synagogue before moving to Israel, which is where I met him earlier this year. He and Alexei were introduced by Navalny's chief of staff. And uh, we had a long, long conversation, uh, maybe, maybe four hours, five hours conversation into the middle of the night. Uh, it was very interesting. I had a lot of questions about uh, Jews and about Judaism. Shimon and Navalny only met in person that one time. But they've been corresponding since Navalny's incarceration. Navalny, who is a practicing Christian, has spent much of his time inside studying the Bible and the Torah. And he's been campaigning to be allowed a copy of the Quran. He has drawn on Shimon's knowledge. And Shimon has, in turn, learned from the jailed politician. If Russia maybe have a better future, then he's the person who can make this future much better. And uh, in my opinion, it's very important if he will uh, stay in life and uh, I hope he will be free. It will affect very much the, the Russian and the old world history. It's telling that Navalny's story arc, a hero who narrowly escapes death and returns to challenge an evil emperor, resonates with everything from Greek mythology to Hamlet to Star Wars. The politician is on an epic journey of his own design. To religious men like Shimon, there is an even more obvious reference. I think what's happened to Alexei Navalny, it's very biblical history. I think the story of the Torah, it's people who didn't afraid and who fought against the evil, who fought against the lies, and uh, sometimes uh, they succeed, sometimes uh, they didn't, but they continue to uh, this fight. The point with Navalny is that unlike Putin, his story is designed to survive contact with death. Myths are hard to kill. Navalny may or may not see his beautiful Russia of the future, 
and those who have left Russia don't know whether there will ever be a place they can call home again. 2,000 years ago, Jews uh, was forced to leave Israel by Roman Empire, but they took their identity with them. Their identity wasn't identity of land. And uh, today, I think it's a similar situation. When people leave, not only Jews, all, all the people, uh, Russians, Ukrainians, they can't take their culture with them. And to develop this culture and this identity in uh, every country in the world. And I think it's very important. But creating a culture outside a homeland doesn't mean giving up on where you came from. At the time of Passover, Jews around the world repeat Lashana, Haba'ah, Bierushalayim. Next year, in Jerusalem. It's a reminder of their life in exile, but it's also an expression of hope. Today, I think it's important to people who left Russia to create such a similar thing next year in Moscow. In which Moscow? Moscow today, if I decide to go there, it will be a very not pleasant place for me. Between those who have left and those who remain, a version of Moscow is being kept alive. In this city, there are no spray-painted letter Zs, no FSB, no political prisoners, and there is no war. I love Moscow, I love Russia, and a good Russia and good Moscow. And I want to visit next year Moscow. Moscow, which is, exists in my mind. Next Year in Moscow was produced by Sam Colbert, Pete Norton and Ksenia Paragovskaya with help from Lika Kramer and Libo Libo Studios. Sound design was by Wei Dong Lin with original music by Darren Ng. Our executive producer was John Shields. Today's episode was produced by Pete Norton and Sam Westron with editing from Claire Reed. The executive producer of The Weekend Intelligence is Gemma Newby. You can join us here next week when we're publishing a new episode of Next Year in Moscow, marking the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Thank you for listening. To hear the rest of the podcast series Next Year in Moscow with Arkady Ostrovsky, our Russia editor, please click the link to subscribe to The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. 
Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.